other gear, and he talks about murder beginning in the heart, about being jealous and hating people. And uh, um, he's taking the Ten Commandments, and he's really making them internal. I mean, I'm pretty sure if I asked for a raise of hands and asked you how many people here have ever killed somebody, probably have no hands go up. Okay, there's Jack again. I'm pretty sure that's not true, Jack. <laughs> uh, Y'all might just want to watch out for him on your way out. Uh, but, but here's the thing Jesus said. It's, it's a heart issue. And then he talks about what, is, what, what is, causes the, the sin of murder is hatred in your heart. And then he lays it out, and everybody that's hearing is guilty, including the people who are making up these lies about him. Uh, so he talks about murder beginning in the heart. He goes, oh, and that, that's not the only thing. Adultery starts there too. So he's basically nailing everybody with their sin. Tough sermon, right? And he talks, he gives a, a brief teaching on marriage, which again, even in his day, very countercultural. He says, we should be careful of what we say. Don't be making promises you're not going to keep. God hears them. Um, he said, we should be servant-hearted. Go the second mile. Uh, nobody wanted to hear that because that was a law. Any Roman soldier could come up to you and subscript you into his service for one mile. You carry my backpack for one mile, and you had to do it. You had no choice. And you know what Jesus said? Go to. Volunteer for the second mile. Are you out of your mind? We hate these people. Yep, and that's your problem. <laughs> There's nothing easy in this sermon. Are you getting the idea? He, he is really stepping on people's toes and, and hurting their feelings. And it gets worse. Why don't they want to go to the second mile? We hate the Romans. He goes, oh yeah, by the way, love your enemies. What? Are you out of your mind? Love your enemies? The Pharisees literally taught to hate your enemies. And now Jesus is saying to love them. And then we get into chapter 6. Chapter breaks are terrible. My humble opinion, the whole Sermon on the Mount should be one really long chapter. <laughs> but it's not. Um, they didn't ask me. But really, you should read the whole thing. So now we're in chapter 6. And this is, this is where we want to start to focus. I just want to give you the idea that up to this point, he said some hard things. Right? And everybody's a little tender, and some people are really ticked off. They're either tender or ticked off right now. And then he, he, doesn't, let, he doesn't take his foot off the pedal. And... Verses 1 through 4, he, not, he talks about doing your good works only to be seen by other people. And uh, who do you think he's talking to here? Yeah, he's really talking to the religious leaders. But what happens with religious leaders? They get emulated, don't they? The people who followed them did what they did. So they did everything they did in front of people to get the applause of people, and those that followed them learned to do what? The same. And so now Jesus is saying, this whole message is, it's all about the heart. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And that's your problem, people, is what Jesus is saying. And even the good stuff you do, you don't do it because to bring glory to God. You bring, to bring attention to yourself. How do, you think, how do you think the Pharisees felt about that? Probably didn't like it, did they? It gets worse. In verses 
5 to 8. In verse 1 to 4, he says, you know what? When you do your good works, do them as secretively as possible. He, was, he says, don't let anybody see it. Why would, why would he say that? Why should we do our good works as secretly as possible? Yeah. What was that, Tom? Don't do it for the applause of men, and God gets the glory, because nobody knows, right? And then, and I love what he says, God who sees in secret will reward you what? Openly. I'm trying to think of who said it. I think it was C.S. Lewis, but it might not have been. I read, I read one of the, the older writers, Christian writers, who said this. He said, the flesh, the flesh despises um, service, self-service, or service of, of another human being. But it screams against hidden service. Isn't that true? Uh, I've told this story before, but it's been a while, so I'll tell it again. I remember the young pastor in Florida. Um, for some reason, I had to drive my sister-in-law's car from their house to my in-law's house. I guess she was there. I forget why. But when I got in that car, her husband was a truck driver, so he was gone a lot. I looked at those front tires, and, and they were hairy. Now, tires aren't supposed to have wires coming out of them, right? You know what I'm talking about? They were dangerous. And um, she asked me, when she called me, could, could I go and, and make sure and blow up that front tire because it was leaking air, which is the only reason I looked at it. And both of those tires were just, they sh you, you shouldn't have been driving on them. So I went to the uh, tire shop, and the guy looked at them, and he said, man, these are really bad. So long story short, I had them put on, I didn't buy new ones, so I couldn't afford them, but I bought some, some good used tires and had them put on. And, I'm in, and I had just read that quote about hidden service, right? And, and the Lord was doing a really cool work in my heart at that point as a young man. And uh, here's this great opportunity. And I'm driving down, um, is it Sunset Parkway? Was that the name of the street? Yeah, Sunset Parkway. And there's a good reason for that, because if you were driving down that, when the sun was setting, you were blind. I mean, it was bright. And I'm driving down Sunset Parkway, heading to Safety Harbor, thinking, here's a great opportunity to just shut my mouth. Nobody's going to know. And God gets the glory. What do you think I did? I couldn't. I was so disappointed. I walked in that house with three of the keys. And I said, by the way, I went to blow that tire up. And it was so bad, I just ended up putting two new tires on the front. Right? I was so disappointed. And I, I mean, I don't believe in hearing God's voice audibly. But I'm telling you what, I think I heard something that said, there you go, Bobo. Hope you enjoyed that, because that's all you're getting out of that. <laughs> anybody, anybody can relate to that? And he's telling you, look, if God is real, trust him. Don't do your works in front of people. Then in verses 5 through 8, he's talking about praying. Um, and again, they would do these great prayers out in public to be seen by guys. And what, and, 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 and what does Jesus say? No, when you pray, go into your what? Closet. Go in a private place. Go in a secret place. Right? And, and really, what's the whole focus here? It's faith. Either God's real or he's not. These guys were acting as though God wasn't going to come through, so they had to get everything they could out of their religious endeavors. And I think what Jesus was saying, that this whole, that, that's all a lack of faith. Can you, can you see? Again, 
I think these guys are fuming right now. I mean, they're already mad from chapter 5. <laughs> and I think there's steam coming out of their ears right now. And then he says, let me show you how to pray. So then in 9 through 13, we have this model prayer, which Jesus says, you ought to be praying in secret. Go, go hide away, you and God. Don't let anybody see this. Nobody needs to hear this. Only God needs to hear it. And here's what you should say. Or here's the outline. And the interesting thing about that outline, it's all about who? God. It's a very God-centered and saturated prayer. We, we don't even get to ask for anything until halfway through the prayer. It's all about God. So he gives them this model prayer. And it would have been fine if he would have just left it there, but he didn't. He had to add verses 14 and 15 and talk about the forgiveness factor. Basically saying, you know, God forgives you. If you expect God to forgive you, you best be forgiving everybody else. Because uh, if you don't, he won't. Oh, man. Right? Heart, there's not a, look, I have searched the whole thing. All three chapters, I can't find an easy thing in this, in this whole sermon. There is, there is nothing that isn't prickly and bitter tasting in this sermon because it, it punches your flesh right in the face, right? So here, here we are. Now we're stuck. Now he's not done. He's going to get into another spiritual practice that is done to be seen by people, and that's fasting. And by the way, this fasting doesn't mean quickly. It means abstaining from food and sometimes even water in order to devote yourself to prayer and repentance and fellowship with God. Um, and what these guys would do is they would make themselves look like they were dying. I remember years ago we were doing a fast here at the church and uh, there was one particular person who decided that they were going to do it. And I think they lasted two days. But you would have thought they had fasted hundred days after day one I mean came into Wednesday night service and had to lay in the pew in the back I'm like I mean they look like they were dying some of you know I should probably shouldn't have used that illustration you know exactly who I'm talking about it was a day and this person could have gone a long time and lived off of the reserves that they had one day and you would have literally thought this person had maybe hours left to live <laughs> And I, I'm, I'm, I'm really not even being dramatic. It's the truth. It was, it was, it was kind of sad. And Jesus said, look, here, here's the deal. When you fast, you fix yourself up, put some makeup on if you got to, and you look normal and you act normal. Do it in hiddenness. God, God's got you covered. Don't do it before people. So again, now they're getting really mad. Oh, but he's not done. Now he's going to go into our wallets. And in verses uh, 19 through 24, he asks, he, see, he's bringing it down to a razor's point. He's going to make an application at the end of this chapter. He asks the question, where are your treasures being deposited? What are you, so he, he said, secret, 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 have faith. And if you're not, you know, you get, it's your heart, man. So God's, that's what Jesus is trying to say here. And then he's saying, let, let me show you, let me, let me prove it to you. Where, where, what do you really treasure? What do you really love? He's been, he's been dancing all around it this whole sermon. Now he's coming in for the laser. He's going to poke him right in the eye. He said, where are your treasures deposited? Everything he's just said 
applause is, is to be seen in public. The applause of men. All your treasures are deposited where? On earth. And he says, don't do that. And here's why. This earth is not going to be forever. There's a new one. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna get rid of this one and start a whole brand new one. Um, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Nobody can take those. But how do you do that? By everything he just said, right? Um, for, and then he says this, for where your treasure is, there will your what? Heart be also. Boy, he just doesn't, he don't make it easy, does he? Um, and I'm sorry, Lisa, I should have been following along with you up there. We're, we're now in verse 22, if you want to find that. I have that on the screen. But you're following along with your copy of God's word, hopefully. So he says, hey, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. You invest your way into what you love, right? And you love your way. What you love, you invest in. And he was being pretty clear about what these people were investing in. And it was ultimately themselves. Okay, well, it gets worse. Now, Jesus um, is going to shift that gear and put his finger on the heart of the matter, which is always a matter of the heart. In verse 22 through 23, He's really coming down to it. He's saying, what is he saying? It's kind of so, let me just read it. It's weird, but let me tell you what I think he's saying. The lamp of the body is the what, church? The eye. Think about lamp, light, eye, it's illumination. If, therefore, your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But look at the next verse. But if your eye is bad, uh, how many of you got some bad eyes out there? I do. It's terrible. If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of what? Darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? In other words, what he's saying to these people is, you're not seeing straight. You're blind. And the problem is you think you're seeing fine. And how bad is it when a blind man thinks he can see? Do you want that guy driving you in your Uber? No. And he said, you guys are as reckless as a blind man on the highway behind the wheel. And you don't even know it. And he's saying, this is a tragedy. You guys are in trouble. And look at verse 24. Now he's, he brings it right down. I mean, he is just drilling down. No one can serve two masters. Why? Because you're going to hate one and love the other? Or be loyal to one and despise the other? And then Jesus doesn't even beat around a bush. Here's the bottom line. You cannot love both God and mammon. Now, mammon isn't just money. It's everything money can buy. It's prestige. It's power. It's position. It's not just money. These guys loved prestige, power, and position. And they leveraged whatever they had to get it. And he knew that the people that followed them were doing the same thing. Now, he really gets down, as they say in the South, he really starts to hoe in our pea patch. Because he talks about worry. And, and think, look at the logical progression here. Okay, so I, I have got to do everything in secret. I've got to trust God with my finances and invest heavily in his kingdom without anybody knowing, so I'm not going to get any thanks here for this. I've got to do all this in secret 
and then, and then <clears throat> hope that God comes through. Well, what's that going to lead me to do if my eye is dark? It's going to lead me to worry, right? And he comes to this whole section in verses 25 through 31 that talks about worry. And boy, does it talk about worry in clear terms. So for you worry warts out there, listen to this. Therefore, now look at that therefore. He's shifting a gear. You can't serve God and this world and everything it has to offer. You can't have both. And because that's true, listen to me, he says, don't worry about life. Because he knew that's right where their mind is going. Well, if I do, if I really sell out to God, what in the world? How am I going to make it? He says, stop your worrying. Don't worry about your life. And then he gets specific. What you will what, church? Eat what you will drink. What will you put on? For uh, life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. You're, he said, you're missing the point. By the way, eat, drink, and wear, food and clothing, what do we call those? Basic what? Necessity. Necessity. You really do need those things. Right? Now, I know this is going to come as a shock, but if you study this out, you look at Jesus, um, you realize he was basically homeless as an adult. He did not have an address. He did a lot of sleeping outdoors. And he crashed at friends' house, houses. Like Lazarus and Mary and Martha. People put him up. Guy had... You couldn't say, oh, we're going to go visit Jesus. Because there was no home address. The man was homeless. Your basic needs are food and clothing. Now listen to me. Everything else is a luxury. So don't tell me I need and then fill that blank in with anything but food, water, and clothes. Because it's not a need. That's what he's saying. Stop your worrying. God's got you. There's more to life than worrying about these mundane things. And look at the next verse. Verse 26. And he gives give an example. Look at the birds. You see them running around in a fit worrying? No, they don't sow, they don't reap, they don't gather in barns like you. And yet, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Aren't you worth more than these birds? They don't even plan for their food, yet God takes care of them. Look at the next verse, talking about worry. Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? Let me tell you what, if that worked, I'd be seven feet tall. Right? He's, he's kind of making a joke here, but it's obvious. What does worry gain you? Nothing that you want. So why do you worry, 28, about clothing? Here's another example from nature. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. In other words, they don't make their own clothes. That's what he's talking about here. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory in his best outfit was not arrayed like one of these Verse 30, now if God clothes the grass of the field, today, which is today and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? That's the crux of the matter, isn't it? The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. And, the, and at the end of the day, these guys really didn't have faith in God. They had faith in power and prestige and position. And whatever they could eke 
out of their culture and surroundings. And here's the deal, brothers and sisters. You and I are not very different from those people. We are, we are, we are, we are literally sapping our environment to get our need for love and acceptance and value met. And I've seen good Christian families do that. And we become works-based instead of grace-based. Oh, that's a horrible thing. So we see this idea of worry and why we should reject it and replace it. That little faith is the real problem in verse 31. That's the end of the story. Oh, you have little faith. Verse 31. Um, Therefore, do not worry. He said, because this is true, stop your worry. There's no need. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we put on? Now look what he says in verse 32. Now he's setting us up for his main point. And after this point, we won't go into it today, but after this point, he finishes up this whole sermon based on verse 33. I think verse 33 is the heart of this sermon. He says, here's why you shouldn't worry. He says, because all these, uh, for after all these things, the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. What's he saying? Now, I need to set a couple things up there for you real quick. And, and, and then we're going we're gonna to run through this verse and, and really just ask the Lord to show it to us, to reveal what we're supposed to do with it. Whenever you see Gentiles mentioned like this, it's not just to, to separate people who are Jews from people who aren't Jews, is it? What, what's he talking about when he says, for after all these things that Gentiles seek? What's he, what do you think he means there? Exactly right. He said, this is what the lost world runs after. Because, and why do they run after it? Don't miss this. It's what he's been saying the whole time. They run after it because they're trying to sap from their surroundings everything they can to meet their heart's desire and need. They run after this stuff because they don't know the Father. Are you with me? They don't know God. Godless people worry and run after their daily needs. The birds don't. The unthinking flowers don't. And look how gloriously the Father takes care of them. And you are so much more valuable than they are. You see his message? It's faith, 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 faith. And you all have none of it, Jesus is saying. Why are you running after these things like lost people? Do you think your Father has no idea? Do you think he's uninformed of your needs? I wrote this down here as I was pondering this out. And it's going to sound crazy, but I want you to think about it for a minute. Worry is the faith of the lost. Think about that for a second. Worry is the faith of the lost world. And let me ask you a question. Why do we worry? Mm. 
the worrier's resource, the worrier's faith is in himself. You see it? The warriors, I have faith in me. And if I am my only resource, then what does worry do? It motivates me to action in order to get my needs met. Anybody seeing this yet? And this was a, they had turned what was a heart matter into letters of the law and it became a legalistic system that nobody was thriving in and you were, your faith was in yourself. So he set all of this hard, hard sermon up for this statement right here. Stop your worrying. Stop acting like you don't even know who the Father is like the Gentiles do. He, God knows what you need. And, and by the very word Father, he, he delights to meet your needs. Amen? Oh, but look, here's our, here's our verse. Verse 33. That's the longest introduction you ever heard. This one won't take too long, though. But... But, I remember as a young youth pastor, my first Sunday, teaching the youth in Baltimore, Maryland. We, I was also a newlywed. And I, re I really had no business being on staff anywhere at McDonald's, much less a church <laughs> at that point in my life. But I remember trying to teach these students Bible study skills. That was the whole, how I started out. I wanted to teach them how to study the Bible. And I talked about certain key words that were to alert you to something and I made the mistake in a group of teenagers of saying whenever you see a butt check it out uh, and that went they all started laughing and I honestly I was so in, into my notes I couldn't figure out what was funny and I'm looking at my wife in the, and she won't even look at me and I didn't had no idea what I had said but that word but is a transition it's, a, it's an oppositional term it, it's think of the word instead in the place of worrying you with me Instead of worrying, let's do the opposite of worry. And what is it? Instead, seek. Now, I need to explain something. You all know this. You've been in school. This is the second person plural, and it's understood. In other words, it's instead, you all, all or are we saying in the South, all y'all, all y'all need to be seeking as a first priority the kingdom of God and his righteousness and notice what he says and then all these what? Things, what things? What we've been talking about. What am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? And what am I going to wear? All of that worldly worries are going to be what? Added to you. Because you have a good what? Dad, you got a good dad in heaven. And he's got you covered. He's got you covered so you can chase after what matters. And you can live above it all. Right? Isn't that what he's saying here? So I, I want to look at this and, and uh, just unpack this real quick with four thoughts. The first one is this. We've got to see the reality of what Jesus is saying here. The reality of what life really is. And life is not what you see with your eyes. It's a kingdom that you don't see. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. And by the way, Jesus taught a lot about the kingdom. I think I could just about say this and be correct. 
Jesus taught nearly exclusively on the kingdom. I was amazed to find this out, that in the Gospel of Matthew, the one that we're in right now, alone, um, the word kingdom is used 56 times in 54 different verses. Isn't that amazing? It was the primary topic of his preaching was the kingdom of God. When Jesus began his public ministry, he went out preaching. And here, right, by the way, that did not happen until John was executed. It was only after the execution of John that Jesus' true public ministry, he started preaching to crowds, big crowds. And when he did, what did he preach? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's right here. Uh, you, you don't even have to go very far. So what is the kingdom? The kingdom is where the king rules and reigns. Amen? That's what it is. And why could he say the kingdom of God is here? Because he was the king. Follow this. This is not hard math. But where the king is, the kingdom is not far behind. Amen? <laughs> the kingdom surrounds the king. And he said, here's what you need to do. You need to recognize that the king is here. And when you do, here's the first thing that's going to happen. You're going to repent. And what's the flip side of the coin of repentance? Belief. By the way, those are not two different things. They're the same thing. Two different sides. Belief and repentance. Don't ever separate them. And always add them together. We could, why, why could Jesus say that the kingdom of Heaven is at hand if he wasn't the king. Where the king is, there's the kingdom. question we should be asking, and they should have been asking, is how do we get to be a part of that kingdom? Well, it's faith. It's the whole thing Jesus was telling they were lacking from the heart. Um, Jesus has to be your king. And it comes by a spiritual transformation. You have to be changed from the inside out. In fact, you have to die and be born again. Any of this sounding familiar? Nicodemus, John chapter 3, just jot that down, go read it this week. He says to them in John 3, 3, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. So you enter his kingdom by being born of God. John 1, 12 tells us, as many as received him and them gave he the right to become the children of God to those who believe on his name. Can't even see the kingdom without being born again. Again, do you see this idea of blindness is everywhere in Scripture? It was Jesus' favorite metaphor for the lost world, including the lost of Israel. It's no wonder that Paul prays in Ephesians 1.18 for those saints to have the eyes of their understanding opened. How many of you know that your eyes and my eyes of our understanding need to be opened today? And that comes by seeking the kingdom of God. And we need to seek it with all of our heart. Jesus' kingdom is not only different from other kingdoms, but like other kingdoms, his kingdom has an enemy. How many of you know the kingdom of God has an enemy? And how many of you know that sinners are part of the enemy band? Y'all realize that, don't you? That's what side we're born on, is the wrong side. Before Jesus went out to preach the kingdom of God, remember what happened? Satan 
tempts him in the wilderness after 40 days of fasting. And what does he tell him? He said, all you got to do is bow down to me and I will give you all the, listen to this word, all the kingdoms, plural, of this world. <laughs> Remember that? And Jesus said, you know what? No, you shall, the, the words, it is written. You shall worship the Lord your God only. He offered him kingdoms. And yet Jesus was the king who came to bring the kingdom to all of those kingdoms. You see that you see what that Satan is the enemy. And if he if he gave his best shot at tricking Jesus, what do you think he will do to you and I? What do you think he was doing to those people that Jesus spoke to on the side of that hill that afternoon? John Eldridge um said this about the kingdom. It's kind of stark, but I think we need stark. To live in ignorance of spiritual warfare is the most naive and dangerous thing a person can do. It's like skipping through the worst part of town late at night, waving your wallet above your head. It's like walking into an Al-Qaeda training camp wearing an I Love the USA t-shirt. It's like swimming with great sharks dressed as a wounded sea lion and smeared with blood. It's very foolish to think that there is no enemy to this kingdom. There's absolutely an opposition to the reign of Christ. And when we don't recognize that, we make a critical mistake. So we must see the reality of this kingdom. And the reality is this, Jesus is king. And let me say here, Satan is not. And Satan is not Jesus' equal opposite. He's not the equal opposite of God. There is no equal opposite of God. There's no op oppositional creature that it, you can put in the same category as God. Satan is a created entity. Martin Luther, the great reformer, used to like to say that Satan is God's lapdog and does nothing without permission. And there's good news in that. Because everything that comes to you whether Satan is, is behind it or not, is filtered through your father. We've got to see that reality. Number two, we need to set a priority. We need to set a priority. As we see the reality of the kingdom of God, that Jesus is the king, we've got to set this priority. Now it says to seek what? First. Now, the way it's written in the Greek is interesting, and it is always for emphasis. Whereas in Latin, your word order doesn't matter. In Greek, it matters a lot. And in the Greek, this idea of first um, actually comes first in the sentence. So it's, it says, but first, primarily, you all must seek. <coughs> and it's that way for emphasis. And we need to understand that um, as we look at this, that this is the emphasis that Jesus sets. And I want to say it doesn't mean like first in line. So, so when I get up in the morning, I seek his kingdom first thing, and then I go about doing my other stuff. Wrong kind of first. That's not the idea. This one is interesting. It says first, but not as in a list, but as in completely and exclusively. This is what I'm, ab I'm about. First to last, this is the primary, exclusive pursuit and purpose of my life. 
We do not pursue his kingdom as the first of several stops on a journey. This was the problem in Galatia where the apostle Paul rebuked the church for turning to legalistic practices to maintain their salvation after having trusted Christ first for salvation. Jesus Christ is the king. So Christ alone is sufficient to equip us for his kingdom. It is only through Christ that we have the promise from God to meet the needs that so often cause us to worry. So it's not like check seeking the kingdom off my list and then get busy about doing other stuff. No. It's like my only... God has, God has one thing on your task list today, and that is to seek his kingdom, to pursue it with everything that's in you, to make it not only your first priority, your last priority, and all the priorities in between. The kingdom comes, I am saturated with the pursuit and expansion and enjoyment of God's kingdom. Does that look like your life today? He gives us everything that we need. Romans 8.32 the Bible says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? The Bible says in Isaiah 55, 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Go after him while he is available. And in Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me, look at this, when you seek me with all of your heart. That's not a one and done, folks. It's a continual seeking. Colossians 3, 1 through 3 says, If then you're raised with Christ, here it is, seek those things which are above. Where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Because you died. And your life is hidden with Christ and God. We need to live and seek that eternal realm, that kingdom of God. It needs to, and we need to find a way to push it to the forefront of our thinking. We must see the reality. Jesus is king. We must set the priority. Seek his kingdom first. And then third, we must submit to his authority. You knew this was coming. We've got to submit. The Bible says in 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6, that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Amen? Jesus Christ is a good shepherd, but he is also the reigning king of kings. And he demands our surrender. Amen. We've got to submit to his authority. And by the way, submitting to his authority is a great blessing. It is no curse. Do you see how backwards our thinking is? you see how turned upside down it is? And you see how upside down the thinking of the kingdom is? When obedience becomes a curse, when in fact it is the greatest of all blessing? When in fact what God requires, he provides? The want to and the ability to obey? All we have to do is submit. D.L. Moody said, Give me ten men who will do nothing but love God and hate sin. And I can change this world. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, was asked what was the secret of his success as far as the impact in his day that was made through the Salvation Army and that was having on, on the entire world. 
And by the way, the Salvation Army and Booth's day was very different than what we see today. Listen to what he said. Booth paused and spoke with tearful eyes. And here's what he said. This blew me away. I'll tell you the secret. God has all of me that there is. There have been men with better brains, greater talents, and greater opportunities. But from the day I got a vision for what Jesus could do with the poor of London, I made up my mind that God would have all of William Booth that there was. George Mueller, same thing. He had an unshakable reliance and faith in God and his provision. You read all of these great men and you're going to find the same thing ringing true. They were single in their submission to the authority of Christ. Jesus Christ had all of them. There was no compartmentalizing these men. And they changed the world. Women as well. We were talking uh, about Amy Carmichael this week. What was that quote, brother, that she had? He said that uh, Satan is busy buying up opportunities Satan is busy buying up opportunities while the saints are busy asking how much does it cost. Amy Carmichael. An unknown young lady from Scotland that God used to change thousands of lives through the gospel. What was her secret? God had all of Amy Carmichael that there was. And she didn't question. She submitted. We just came out of the Advent season. One of the statements that comes out of that that just humbles me so much is when you know, the angel comes to Mary and says, Hey, you're it. You won the prize. You're going to be the mother of the Messiah. What we don't realize is what disaster fell upon Mary as a result of that. Right? Mary's life was not good. She was called very nasty names every day when she went to the market. And they had a specific name for her son. And you know what that was. Not easy. And then where do we see her? Standing at the foot of the cross with her son naked, his body literally ripped to shreds, his beard, half of it missing, and a crown of thorns smashed into his skull. Josephus said he would have looked like an animal nailed to a stake. He couldn't even tell it was a man. Not a great life. What does she say to the angel? What's that? Be it unto me. Who am I? I am the slave of the Almighty. We need that Mary attitude. Demands our submission. We must understand this. God is not interested in building your kingdom. But he is extremely committed to meeting your needs that empower you to build his kingdom. We got to submit to that. And then lastly, we got to strive for his purity. What does it say? But seek first his kingdom, but there's an and in there, and that's a connector word. And his what? Righteousness. 
And when we do that, all this other stuff is added, right? Now, what does that mean? And real quick, what does that mean that we are to seek his righteousness? We must recognize the reign of God is not only powerful, but it is pure, holy, and righteous. It's never wrong. You notice that Jesus is not saying seek your own personal righteousness. Matter of fact, the entire sermon up to now is pointing a finger and saying, you seeking your own personal righteousness is a disaster. It's a lack of faith. Stop trusting in you and start trusting in my Father. He doesn't want your righteousness. Your righteousness are as filthy rags. Nothing God wants or would accept. Instead, the emphasis is on seeking his righteousness, not getting yourself cleaned up before you go seeking after God. Rather, Jesus declares that God is righteous. We don't get God by being righteous. We get righteous by getting God. Amen? What a beautiful thing. It's the, the, the theologians called it an alien righteousness, imputed a righteousness from outside of us, placed on our record, and when it is, we run after it. We live in it. I put it this way when I wrote it down. We must pursue his righteousness until it becomes ours practically. Imputed that declared righteousness that God puts into our bank account before him. We got to chase after that and be committed to that and submitted to the authority of Christ so much so that, it, that the imputed becomes the outputted. I know that's bad grammar, but it works, brother. The imputed becomes the outputted. The output of this righteousness that God put in our account. He didn't put it there for you to earn interest on it. He put it there for you to use every single day. And we got to get to the point, and that's where this thing ends today, that we let that this kingdom seeking and expansion and enjoyment happens so much that we refuse to do wrong. Instead of saying, well, God will, has forgiven me for that as we're tempted, we say, God forbid I do that because it costs the blood of Jesus. I have this imputed righteousness and I'm free from that. Is, that. is that making sense this morning? The emphasis is not on getting yourself cleaned up, but living from the cleaned up inside out until it shows up in our everyday life at the crossroads of temptations and trials. So I'm going to close with this couple of quick thoughts. And jot these down because I want you to ponder them this week. And I want you to give room for the Holy Spirit to answer these questions for you and with you. And here it is. What does it look like for King Jesus and his kingdom to be your exclusive focus? What would that look like? Are you pursuing the kingdom? And is that pursuit what you're really about? Like, not a check off, but that's, that's you. I'm all about the kingdom. Why do, why do these people, these young people, like Brett and Jennifer Wright, well, you talk about a kid that he refused to give up. He was turned down and turned down it was either the becoming a pilot that wasn't working out for him, and then when he finally got the pilot thing down, uh, the agency that he had planned for from the time he was 12 to go with turned him down and said, you can never apply again. I don't know, man. That young man had some serious commitment 
Because if that was me, I'm saying, you know what, Lord? I did everything I told you I was going to do. You shut the doors. I'm going to go become a commercial pilot and make some bank and have a good, comfy life with my wife and young family. It's not what he did. He went to Alaska and got a job flying planes so he could get more experience. Got several hundred hours of flight experience. And then he found another missions agency, African Inland Missions. And applied, and right now, he's flying somewhere in Africa, and his wife and the boys are in this compound, not super safe, with a really big dog and some security equipment, and, and she is working for the organization out of their home while raising their sons, and he's flying all over Africa to bring the gospel. What makes people do that? Because they see the bigger picture, and they're committed. Now, those kids aren't perfect. But man, they're not giving up. And so many of us have. We've gotten comfortable. Let me ask you this question. How does chasing this kingdom change, influence, and shift not only what you do, but how you do it? Maybe I could put it this way. When was the last time his righteousness, this alien righteousness that was granted to you helped you to say no to sin. You should be able to have that discussion with somebody today and have an answer. And if you don't, you both probably need to stop what you're doing and pray. Because we talked about it earlier this morning. I fear that so many of us have gotten just enough of the gospel to be vaccinated against it. We got just enough of the truth, said a little prayer, got wet when we were five or 50. It doesn't matter. But, 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 but we're, not, we're not expanding the kingdom. We're not enjoying the kingdom. If anything else, we said, thanks, God, for that, and uh, I'll see you when I'm dead. I'm going to go live the rest of my life without you. I'm going to tell you what, if that's your attitude, you never got them in the first place. You got a vaccination. You did not get a resurrection. God help us. Test yourselves and see whether you be in the faith. You know why we don't? And I'm done. You know why we don't? Because the things, the things <laughs> cloud our mind and they demand our attention. What jobs am I going to get this week to feed this growing family? How am I going to meet this need? I just bought the kid those pants and now they're short on them. What does he think I'm made of, made of money? Can he wear shorts through January? Till my next pay. The things, the things, the things. They're, they're taking first place in our mind. But the, Jesus said the lost world worries about this stuff and you got a dad who loves you and has got all this stuff taken care of. Learn to enjoy him and let his presence and his purpose saturate your life and watch the things be taken care of and take second place in your life. That's what believers look like. That's what kingdom people look like. And the question is, which are you? Would you stand with me? Pardon me. There's an old song we used to sing years ago. And we'll just do the first verse of that, Lisa. Right out of this text. It's called, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. 
And I want to I want to just sing that verse. That first one. And as we do, I want to ask you that question. What are you chasing? Examine your worries. And when we go to bed at night more worried about the expansion of God's kingdom and my living righteously in it that day than the things we might be getting somewhere. Huh? And maybe ask God to give us a heart of repentance to chase after him. Goes like this. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Alleluia, alleluia. Father, do what only you can. Let your spirit be awakened in us to ask some hard questions. What are we pursuing? Is it the things or is it you? In your kingdom, what are we worried about? And may you gently lead us along to understand the incredible joy, comfort, fulfillment, and peace that comes when we are singly, exclusively concerned with enjoying your kingdom, expanding it, and fiercely cutting out anything that is not your righteousness coming out of our life. Would you make us, these people in this room today, incredibly sensitive to sin? And may it grieve us like it grieves you so that we may know the joy of your salvation. And pursue your kingdom above all else. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God.